This episode of The Homilist is brought to you by Ozark Christian College. Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri has been focused on the same mission for over 75 years, to train men and women for Christian service. Ozark's Bible Foundation, Christian Community, Global Outreach, and Affordable Cost prepare students to serve in whatever kingdom assignment God has for them. With residential and online degrees, Ozark sends out workers into the harvest field. With 15,000 alumni serving in all 50 states and in 100 countries around the world. Ozark is also glad to offer next-level resources, free videos and webinars for you and your church, led by Ozark professors like Michael DeFazio, Shane J. Wood, and Mark Scott. Next-level resources cover topics like how to read your Bible, the parables of Jesus, and exploring the Enneagram, and much more. Find next-level resources at no cost at occ.edu forward slash next level. And find out more about Ozark Christian College at occ.edu. Here we are again. Thank you for listening to The Homilist and watching The Homilist if you've tuned into our YouTube page. Today, my guest is Bob Russell. Yes, that's right. The Vito Corleone of the Christian Church. He was the preaching minister at Southeast Christian Church for 40 years, a church that started with 120 people. And when he retired in 2006, it had grown to 18,000. What's more is that it seems since his retirement, he has only gained momentum. He graciously agreed to spend an hour with me on Skype talking about preaching, and I'm a better husband, father, and preacher because of it. Here's my conversation with Bob Russell. Mr. Bob Russell, thank you so much for joining me on the Homilist Podcast. I'm glad to, Jared. Thanks for asking me. This is excellent. This is excellent. I um, I was I was sending I was sending out some emails the other day, and I was chatting it up with um, uh, Dave Stone's assistant and. Kyle Eidelman's assistant, and I got Dave scheduled, and I got you scheduled, and then Kyle had to reschedule, and so I was going to really lay it on him real thick about how, you know, look, you're not that busy, pal. You're not that. Well, those are two talented guys, and they'll be good interviews. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited to chat with them. So, yeah, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Well, I'm glad to join you, and uh, you've got some creative questions. <laughs> well, I tell you what, this this thing, this this podcast kind of uh, kind of uh, erupted from probably one of the one of my strongest and weakest characteristics, and that's just pure curiosity. You know, that I'm just curious what guys, what guys, how guys operate, how preachers operate. You know, I've been preaching in this church that I'm at for a little while. And um, I think, man, I wonder if I'm the only one who's strange. You know, I wonder if I'm the only one with weird questions. You know, that's one of the reasons I started uh, retreats. When I retired, I, I started uh, a monthly retreat, which I bring in. I live with eight guys and because I want there to be interaction. There's so many uh, pastors conferences you can go to where you're sitting among hundreds and getting information but i think guys need to interact with each other yeah uh, find out that you're not by yourself the other guys go through the same thing that you do yeah well that's i mean it, one of the things that one of the things that i've realized from just this podcast just sitting and talking with these guys that so many of them have i mean i talked to a guy who is a preacher in a massive a massive church which you 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 know him aaron brockett Sure. Um, and I was talking with him on the phone, and you know, one of the things that that we we talked about were preaching pitfalls. And he made the comment when we were on the phone that, you know, it's amazing you can preach a sermon, and you can think to yourself like, ah, I was probably a seven. He said, but by two o'clock in the afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, he said the sermon just gets worse and worse and worse and worse in my mind. You That's know, right. and I, I think that. I don't think it matters what what size of church you're in. I think a lot of preachers have that same thing, and that was pretty encouraging to hear. You know, I think two out of three times when I preached, I was a little depressed afterwards. <laughs> yeah, because it all has to do with your level of expectation. Mm. And when you work hard on a sermon and you prepare it. And you know, people have needs, and it never quite. Hardly ever does it quite measure up to what you think it should be. Yeah. And, uh, I, I often would work, walk out of the pulpit saying, that wasn't very good. No, no, I didn't help anybody today, and I get discouraged. Some psychologist years ago tried to analyze me and suggest there was something wrong with me emotionally because I got depressed after preaching. I said, I don't think you've ever preached a sermon in your life. <laughs> like, because, you know, we know 
that God's word has the power to meet needs that people have. We're aware of those needs, and we want to help so much. And then when we're finished, we're not sure we accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. And that's probably because we don't have enough confidence in the word of God to do its work. Mm, I think you're right. We uh, probably tells us a little bit about how much we're leaning on our own strengths. I think that's right. Yeah. I think you're uh, I think you're onto something with that. Hey, uh, let me open this up with with one of my favorite questions to talk to guys about because it just it just always gets a great response. Um, what what is one of the passages of scripture that really makes you laugh? That really just just gets you in stitches a little bit. Well, let me give one of the Old Testament and one of the New Testament. Okay, I, I laugh when I read that passage about Jacob in the Old Testament being pawned off to have to marry Leah, and he doesn't know about it. And then the next morning, there's a passage in the NIV that says, he woke up, and there was Leah. <laughs> and I think that, that's kind of funny to me. I don't think it's very funny to Jacob. Right. But, but the way the Bible puts it is funny. But, you know, the one in the New Testament that I didn't see for a long time was when the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple. And announces that in his old age, he's going to give birth to a son who's going to be John the Baptist. And uh, Zechariah is overwhelmed that this angel has appeared to him. He knows it's an angel. He's terrified. And then the angel said, I'm going to, you're going to have a son. You and your wife in your old age are going to have a baby. And here's what the baby's going to do. And then Zechariah responds by saying, how can I know that this is true? And usually we read it that the angel said, I am Gabriel, and, and I think what he's saying is, hey, I'm Gabriel. <laughs> I'm an angel here. What more proof? What more proof do you need? Yeah. Why would you not believe when an angel appears to you? And, and he, he says, I am I'm Gabriel. <laughs> and, and that's funny to me. Yeah. Then he goes on and says, okay, there is going to be another sign. If, if having an angel isn't enough, you're going to not be able to speak here until the right. next point. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's very similar to that to that passage in uh, at the end of John in John twenty, where Mary Magdalene is is standing at the tomb, and the angel says, "Woman, why are you crying?" She's like, "Ah, they took the Lord. I don't know what they did with it. Like there was nothing about the angels that captured her. Like she, <laughs> she just wanders off. Like and the angels are looking at, at at the tomb, and I think in my mind, like they look at each other, like oh, she didn't even notice us. Yeah, she didn't, like, <laughs> don't you? Like, however, when, when you see humor in the Bible. Oh, man, yeah. I was preaching an expository sermon from Second Peter 3, where Simon Peter says, now, the Apostle Paul, in all of his wisdom, writes some things that are difficult to understand. <laughs> I said, you know what? I agree with Peter. Right. If, if I meet Paul in heaven someday, I said, Paul, do you have a little time to talk to me? Right. <laughs> you wrote some things. I have some. When you wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 about baptism for the dead, would you, would you explain that to me? Or how about that passage? when you said in 1 Corinthians 14 that women are to keep silent in the church. Did you have any idea how much of a hassle that was going to create? <laughs> or, or what about Ephesians 1, when you said we're God's elect and we're predestined, would you explain the difference between predestination and foreknowledge? I preached about that for 50 years, but frankly, I didn't know what I was talking about. Would you explain that to me? I, I, I love when we can see humor in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, uh, I don't think you have any idea how much trouble you caused us with some of this stuff. You can you can you kind of explained this just a little, just a little clearer, you know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There's, it, but I think it's like I think it's like several preachers, you know. You know preachers from around, and you get to know them, and you talk to them, and then somebody comes and they say something to you about, well, you know, oh, so and so was a preacher. And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know him. You're like, yeah, well, you know, I mean, he's 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 kind of an intellectual. You kind of got to hang on tight when you or you talk about another guy, well, maybe just a little watered down, or you know. And then Peter's in that place, and he's like, listen. The Apostle Paul wrote that, but he writes a lot of stuff that's hard to understand. You know, that's why some people don't go to that church because you know people like it over here. You know, our our music's not as good, but you know, boy, you you walk out with a little bit of knowledge on something. You don't walk out scratching your head, you know, like they do at Paul's church. You know, Bible characters, and you find out uh, those people were human just like we are, yeah. and they had frailties just like. We have frailties. You know, when James talks about Elijah was a man just like us, but when he prayed, he was what? But I think studying about 
Peter's failures or admitting Paul wrote some things that are under, hard to understand or King David's flaw, we say, you know what? God used those people. Maybe he can use me too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And that's so encouraging. You know, we've got a guy in our church who uh, he came in one day and, and uh, he'd been coming to church for a while, he and his wife and their kids. And, and uh, he came in one Sunday and Boy, you could tell he and her had been in a, they'd been in a squabble. They'd been in some sort of fight that morning. And, and, and he was sitting in the, he was sitting in the foyer and she was sitting in the sanctuary and he wasn't going to go near her and she wasn't going to go near him. And she looked like she'd been crying and he was sitting out there just fuming, just kind of storming around. And he came up after church and I said, uh, I said, Hey, I said, everything okay with you? He said, you know what? He said, me and my wife got in a nasty fight this morning. I said, you did? He says, yeah. I said, well, man, I said, what, what happened? I said, you want to talk about it? He said, you know what? I don't know if you know this or not. He said, but I've been coming to church here a long time, and I don't believe anything that you guys believe. I said, well, well, that's interesting. And he said, uh, he said, yeah. He said, I come for her. He said, but this morning I really messed it up. He said, we, the van wouldn't start and the kids were fighting and we had to walk here and we had to do this. And it was just, it was just a real mess, you know? And I said, yeah, what's that? Those things happen. He said, and then I said something I shouldn't have said. He said, I, I said, you know what? I go to church with you every week and I listen to these fairy tales. He said, you know what? That really crushed her. That really crushed her. And I'm just, I feel really bad about saying that. He said, even though I'm not a believer, he said, I know this is important to her. And I've been I've been coming and supporting her in this. He said, and I, sh- I shouldn't have said that. And <laughs> I looked at him and I said, let me tell you something, pal. I said, uh, yeah, whether or not you ever become a believer, I want you to know something. Based on what you're telling me right here, you sure would be good at it. You sure would be good at being a believer because, I mean, you're loving the people around you. You're supporting them. I said, I'm, but, but I'm going to warn you. You keep messing around with Jesus. You keep showing up here. He's going to start rearranging your furniture, you know, he's going to get you. And he just kind of nodded his head like, yeah, I don't know. He said, I, I just don't. I just don't. I've just always kind of been an agnostic guy. It was probably about six months later. He came up after service and he said, remember that conversation we had? I said, yeah. And he said, but Jesus rearranging all my furniture. I said, yeah. And he goes, well, he did it. And I'd like to get baptized next week if I can. And I said, that's fan. Well, it was incredible. Well, since then, he has baptized all of his kids um, in the church, you know, and just watching that thing unfold and knowing that, you know, you see the apostle, you see the apostle Paul, you know, you see this guy is, you know, just persecuting the church. And then all of a sudden, this massive turnaround, you know, and you think, well, you hardly ever see that. <laughs> this guy here. When it happens, though, that's when ministry is worthwhile. You think? Absolutely right. right. Yeah, absolutely right. It's just a really, just a really cool story, you know. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Hey, um, I've listened to a ton of your stuff just in preparation and and through through the years. I mean, we've. I was an Ozark Ozark Christian College graduate, and and you know, I've got a. In fact, in my office, I've got a preaching today tape of back when they used to call you Robert Russell. Um, <laughs> And uh, I've listened to a lot of your sermons, and there's so much in there, um, uh, history-wise. Like, you bring in a whole lot of history. Uh, when you talk about Churchill, and you talk about, you know, some of these some of these people and some of these things that had unfolded in, in World War II, and you've got all these really rich uh, historical stories. Who are some of the guys that, that have inspired you through the years, preachers or otherwise? Well, uh, I... I was a big fan of Chuck Colson, mm. who uh, was in Watergate and wrote the book Born Again. Mm-hmm. And I used to love to hear him preach. Uh, I had a, a, I was a fan of a guy named Bob Shannon in the Christian Church, who was a tremendous sermon writer and orator. And he, re- when I hear him preach, I, I think a sermon ought to be like a, a fillet, all the bone cut out and all mm. the all the fat cut out and, and every sentence means something. And Bob Shannon was an inspiration to me in that regard. I, I, I got a lot out of Fred Craddock. I mm. just love to hear Fred Craddock talk about preaching and, uh, I, I enjoyed him a lot. I, I, I uh, somebody years ago, uh, gave me, Jared gave me a Christmas gift of a couple hundred dollars and said, uh, I want you to use this gift to enhance your library. And 
So I went out and it was a, I had just heard Charles Swindoll. This is back when I was a young preacher. And I went out and I bought $200 worth of Charles Swindoll tapes. And for six months, he was my morning devotion. I would get up and listen to one of his sermons. And I I loved the way at that stage of his ministry, he was still at EV Free in Fullerton, California. And he was preaching as a pastor expository preaching, but applying it in a really good way. And I got a lot out of listening to Charles Swindoll. Mm, that's good. There's a, um, there's a, there's a richness to, to your preaching that, that took me back to my childhood. As, as I listened to sermon after sermon of yours, it took me back to listening to Dave Bycroft preach um, down at Tyro, um, who, which is where Desiree, uh, Desiree grew up. And where I grew up, and I work with one of Dave's sons now, and listening to you two preach, it's very—you guys have a very similar, very similar sound. Now, I think you're probably close, um, close in age. And well, I think a lot of good things about Dave and the ministry that he had, kind of a country church, wasn't a small city, small yeah. town. And he he did a, an outstanding job, so that's an honor for you to mention me with him. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool, very cool. He. You know, I grew up. I grew up in that church. My mom and dad went to that church. I lived across the street. We used to uh, we used to play inside that building, and you know, all the time, all summer long, me and me and his boys would get together and we'd we'd mill around and maybe play in the baptistry, maybe not, maybe <laughs> maybe let wild animals loose in the sanctuary, maybe not. We maybe not. <laughs> we had a we had a good we had a good time, you know, growing up playing in that church. And uh, but listening to listening to your stuff, listening to your sermons, man, it really it really did. It took me back to man. This sounds so this sounds so much like what it was like when I was growing up listening to Dave preach. You know, um, we were trained homiletically probably the same way, and you know, preaching styles and forms change over time, but there's still the the truth of God's word that comes through regardless. Yeah. Form. Yeah. Well, it was. It sure. It sure has been. It sure has been a really cool week for me to be able to sit and listen to that many things. I I pulled out my phone and I sent I sent David I sent David a text message and and I said, Hey, I'm listening to Bob Russell and I said, Golly, it just re- just reminds me so much of you know growing up hearing all this and you know hearing the way you preached and oh he he came back with Wow man that's I, I'm honored I appreciate it that's amazing you know thanks so much you know and that's a that's a church that that's a church that uh, before that, a guy by the name of Kenny Bowles uh, preached at, and then Dave Bycroft came in, and this is a town of, you know, where I grew up, Tyro, Kansas, 200 and, I don't know, 250 people. Isn't and it then, amazing, though, how some of those small churches have sent kids into Bible college absolutely. and influence worldwide because of that channel that they got started? My home church was was uh, a little over 100 most of the time, and I think they've had 40, 50 kids go yep. into Bible college, like you're mentioning. And the only eternity is going to reveal some of the impact <laughs> of those little-known churches and those little-known ministries sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's what's incredible about Tyro is that Tyro, their focus was always about sending more kids into the ministry. It was just, we're going to send more kids in the ministry. And what's, what's incredible is the numbers in the church in a town of 250 people. Dudley Rutherford said it this way. I, I believe it was Dudley Rutherford years ago said they would say, you know, well, you know, this church is the biggest church in, in the United States or this church is the biggest church in the United States. And I, I believe it was Dudley Rutherford who said those are not the biggest churches in the United States. The biggest church in the United States is in Tyro, Kansas, because the population of Tyro is 250 and they break a thousand every Sunday. <laughs> well, that's the truth. Show me, show me a church that you get that kind of percentage. <laughs> that's right. Give Louisville, you have a pretty good sized church. That would be pretty big, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah. So yeah, that was, that, but that was always interesting, and it was, a, it was a real honor to grow up in a in a place like that where they, they really did push the the, you know the the important things first, you know, we didn't get lost in a lot of that other stuff. So yeah. What, uh, when it comes to, when it comes to preaching style for you, how, how, uh, how did it, how long did it take you to kind of figure out your voice, um, your talents, your gifts when it came to the preaching side Were there, well, was that a long process for you? Well, I think it was a process that took three or four years. Uh, what I wanted to be when I started was a dramatic George Stansberry evangelism kind of style, and they didn't fit me at all. But while I was in school, I, I would listen to 
uh, actually, there were 33 and a third <laughs> records of guys who were good communicators. Yeah. And I learned about uh, pace mm. and pausing and style. In my era, a preacher was uh, super dynamic if he shouted loud and uh, spoke fast all the time. And so uh, some of the people who impacted my preaching delivery were were guys who were not necessarily preachers, but they spoke to teenagers in high schools like Don Loney or, or some other uh, motivational speakers. And I had to accept the fact that I am not a dynamic speaker as such. Uh, I, I went to Korea several years ago with my administrative assistant, and I walked into this room for the Korean Christian Convention, and they had 3,000 people jammed in this room that seated 2,500, and it was like a charismatic service. These Christians were really very expressive, and the guys who prayed were more forceful than I am when I preach. And mm. I, uh, they were kind of in the aisles and shouting amen, and that's not the kind of audience that I usually go over very well. And I'm speaking through an interpreter, and the longer I was there, the more insecure I felt. Wow. And I thought, this is going to be boring to these people. And I wrote a little note to my administrative assistant, assistant and I said, I think I'm in trouble. And I saw him write just, I knew he was going to say, just be yourself. He slipped the note back in front of me and it said, just pep it up a little. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not my nature. I, I can't. I'm giving you everything I've got. But, it's not, but you know, there to me, there are two kinds of, of, of preachers. There are convention preachers and there are pastoral preachers. Mm -hmm. A convention preacher is all about delivery. He can wow you and capture your attention by reading the phone directory if he wants to. Right. But a pastoral preacher is more about content and uh, about feeding people. And those of us who are in a local church are pastoral preachers. We may not wow people at a convention, but the challenge is, can you feed people and keep people's attention week by week? And I think there has to, that, that's a lot about content and study more than delivery. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a trick to writing a new book report on the same book every week, year after year. <laughs> yeah, you feel like you have a term paper due every week, and it's right. The clock starts ticking when you walk out of the pulpit on Sunday morning. You know, that's exactly right. I think, good gosh, oh man, these uh, these days go by so fast. You know, like Sunday yeah, just. Well, keeps... I, I don't have anything to say next week, so I, if I were you, I wouldn't come back. <laughs> but you, you're scrambling to, every week to try to keep ahead. That's right. Yeah, that's a uh, it's a tricky it's a tricky thing when it comes to your when it comes to your sermons uh, preaching. Are there ever moments? Uh, are there ever moments to where you need to get this sermon in front of somebody else before you preach it? I think that's a great question. My my son Rusty preaches in Port Charlotte, Florida, and he is blessed with a wonderful wife. And one of her gifts is he preaches his sermon to her at noon every Thursday. She's very perceptive and will say this is good, and she they have a good enough relationship that she's able to be honest. Now, two or three times he told me that she said, you know what, you need to go back to the drawing board, start all over again. Now, he found for a divorce a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true, but it's really valuable to be able to either verbalize it or to have somebody look at your manuscript. Every week, but I had a guy on staff named Dave Kennedy, who was a good friend of mine, my age, and he had a real skill to read a manuscript and see how it was going to go across. And I would quite often say to him, Dave, um, I need to cut out 10 minutes of this sermon, and I don't know what to cut out. Would you read it over and give me suggestions? And he would read it over and come back with some brutal suggestions sometimes, saying, I'd cut out this whole section. Here's why. I'd rewrite this section. And if I took it to him, when he brought back to me, I, I did what he said. Because huh. I, I was frustrated not knowing what to do. Yeah. And if I got that frustrated... I knew I could take it to Dave, and I made up my mind when, I, when he brought it back to me, I was going to listen to him and not look back. I would sometimes run something by my wife. Uh, Judy is not necessarily uh, great at uh, overall evaluating of a sermon, but if I had two illustrations 
or two methods of introducing a sermon, if I would verbalize to her, which of these two do you think is best, she would have an opinion. Mm-hmm. And if I went that far that I came to her and asked her about it, I would again take her counsel. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a, that's a tricky thing sometimes. I mean, and preachers tend to get a little territorial about, about that kind of stuff. You know, they, a lot of them want to kind of hold on to that thing. They don't, I don't want to put it in front of another preacher. I don't want him to judge me. I don't want, you yeah. know, um, but you know, another thing that helped me is for the last 20 years of my ministry, I, I, I had a preaching sermons, a sermon study group mm-hmm. and we would meet on Thursday and I would have kind of a very rough uh, manuscript of what I was going to say. And I would verbalize some of that to them and to see the reaction or to hear, boy, that's really good. I want to write that down or to see it just go over their head was, was helpful to me to, to be in that group. Yeah, I uh, I spoke with Dave Erickson, who's out at Academy Christian Church in uh, Colorado right. Springs, Colorado. Uh, fantastic preacher. If if you've if you've if you've never heard him preach, if you can you can find something by Dave Erickson mm-hmm. and listen to him. Just a wonderful storyteller. Just a wonderful just just real smooth storyteller. And uh, he and I were talking, and he said that he has been studying with he had been studying when he was doing. Uh, primarily preaching ministry all the time. He he met with guys, and I want to say he said for like twenty years straight, every week he met with other preachers in town and and talked about preaching. And you know that that inspired me. And I got a hold of a guy, and and he and I meet every Tuesday and talk about preaching and talk about life and talk about you know just just to kind of get some of that out in the open. And I mean, immediately the perspective, my perspective just broadened as I would say, you know, I want to talk about you know John twenty, and he would say, Oh, are you are you coming from this angle? I'm like, <laughs> I am, I am now. You know, I am now. <laughs> but it really does help. Because guys are reading different things, or they're seeing different movies, or they've they've uh, been taught a different angle of this passage of scripture, and it really is helpful. Mm-hmm. I I went every summer with a guy in our church to a professional golf tournament. He played on the PGA Tour, and I could not get over how hard the very best golfers in the world worked to improve their score. Mm-hmm. And they don't show up ten minutes before the. The, the tea time, they're out there an hour and a half before, 45 minutes afterward, tweaking little things because they know that if they can shave one stroke off, their score means the difference of thousands of dollars. And what we're doing is so much more important than that. But these are the best golfers in the world. And no matter how good you are as a preacher, you should never get to a place where you're satisfied. They're always saying, how can I improve? What can I do? Does this help me if I talk it over with some people? And sometimes we have to swallow our pride and say, you know, I don't have all the answers here. Maybe somebody else has some. Hardly ever would I come away from this sermon study group without one or two quotes or one or two ideas that would enhance the message. Brilliant. Yeah, man. And that's and that's hard, you know, and especially I think in your in your youth. And I don't I don't know that, you know, there's this this we highlight these young preachers. I was thinking about that this this last week. We highlight these young preachers all the time and we we put all their stuff on social media. We put all their stuff on YouTube and these these running highlight reels of these really great quotes from these, you know, dynamic, young, you know, powerful, excitable preachers. And and you think, golly, like man, that is so good. And I think what happens for for a lot of preachers, especially younger preachers, maybe maybe even older preachers, I think they look out into the into the landscape of all that, and they think, man, I'm just not very good because these guys are walking highlight reels, you know. And being able to sit down and talk through that stuff and kind of forget about the <laughs> sideline stuff, you know, and really focus on, okay, so how can I get better? One of the joys of this podcast for me is. With every guy that I interview, I try to take something from his style and try to work it into what I'm doing the following week uh, mm. in the church. Just just to see if maybe maybe there's something else in there. Like I kind of think I have a pretty good understanding of how I should do things, you know, how I should preach. But I wonder if I wonder if I could do I, that thing appeals to me. I wonder if I can do what he does. I'm gonna I'm gonna try that. And there's weeks it does not work 
at all. And I'm, then I'm going back to my, my manuscript and I'm reading. <laughs> you know? But you know, and you're then, trying to get better. I think yeah. we ought to say, I want to be a better preacher when I'm 50 than I was at 40 or 60 yeah. than I was at 50. But you know, again, I'm going to come back to the golf analogy. It's really helpful to me to go out and watch these professional golfers because the guys we see on TV on Sunday are the guys who are playing at their best. And we think, man, those guys are fantastic. You go to an everyday golf match and watch one guy around, you find out they make a lot of mistakes. And it, it kind of reassures you about your own game. I'm not that good, but I'm, I'm, they're not perfect. Mm-hmm. And I think in preaching, we see these highlight reels, and we think, I can't measure up to that, man. These guys are fantastic. But if you listen to somebody week after week, and you're exposed even to the best, you find out they bomb out sometimes, or yeah. they botch up the King's English sometimes, or they lose their place sometimes, just like I do. Are you or someone you know wanting to make a difference with your life, but you're not sure where to start? At Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri, they help students discover the kingdom assignment that God has for them and then train them to carry it out. Ozark prepares students for all kinds of Christian service, biblical communication, biblical justice, youth and children's ministry, counseling, missions, organizational leadership, worship and creative arts, and much more. Ozark's close community, Bible foundation, and commitment to service prepare students to take the gospel to every corner of the globe as ambassadors for Christ. And Ozark's affordable tuition offers a quality private Christian education at a public university price. Ozark Christian College. Your mission is out there. Your training starts here. On the topic of of family life, wives, conversations like that, the overlap between, you know, ministry and the home and because that can get kind of complicated and and you're kind of a sage voice when it comes to leading a church, having a family and and that kind of thing. How do we maneuver and navigate through some of the family breakdowns that sometimes happen? Uh, And when I say breakdown, I don't mean huge, but some of the things that, that, that kind of fall out of balance a little bit as we're trying to lead a church, because I think so many of us kind of worry about that a little bit. Yeah, I I think we have to be realistic there, too, and say, you know what, if I'm going to only preach when everything is perfect at home, (laughs) <laughs> there are going to be a lot of Sundays I'm going to say, folks, let's just sing some more songs. <laughs> right. <laughs> because everybody has problems. No marriage is perfect. And uh, you have problem with your kids. Uh, you have, then you have problems with your grandkids. My wife and I decided a couple of weeks ago, we're not having any more kids. Because <laughs> <laughs> kids and grandkids bring, bring problems. <laughs> but uh, it is not phony to get into the pulpit and say, folks, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. We've got a word from God today. Uh, if, if Once in a while, I think you can go to Paul and say, folks, I've really had a tough week, and I want you to pray for me because I, I don't feel like preaching today, but not very often. Right. Your congregation may rally to your cause once or twice, but for the most part, you better get up there in a spirit of joy. Now, I'll talk to preachers, and say, well, that's hypocritical. No, that's obedience. Jesus said, when you're fasting... Don't let the world know that you're fasting. Wash your face, comb your hair, put on a cheerful countenance, and your Heavenly Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Mm-hmm. There are going to be times when you get up and you've got a heavy heart because your teenage kids are rebellion. Or you and your wife have had a spat on the way to church, and you feel like a phony getting up there. <laughs> uh, but it's not a time to spill your guts and say, folks, I'm preaching today. <laughs> My wife and I just had a spat, and I don't feel like preaching. Well, when we make a decision, some transparency is good. Uh, some restraint is wise. And uh, I, I think we always have to put the family first. And we say, okay, if I say something, is this going to hurt or help my family? Mm-hmm. That's why I had an agreement with my wife and with my kids. If I'm going to use you as an example in a sermon, I'm going to get your permission first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I there, I had some good stories that I never got to use because it somehow hurt my kids too much. Mm-hmm. They said, Dad, I don't want you to use that. <laughs> my wife, one time, she had a new dress, and she didn't know that it only was to be dry cleaned. And she was going to wear it the next morning, and she was upstairs in the bathroom. She, she dipped it in the water in the sink. And I mean... Uh, Jared, it, it shrunk up like a doll's dress. I heard this blood-curdling scream from upstairs, and I came around upstairs, and she said, Oh, Bob, look at my new dress. And don't you dare use this as a sermon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
that was the first words out of her mouth. You know, that never did. But uh, I, I think as a preacher, you have to accept there are always going to be some things wrong. And if, if you have to have 100% perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with your kids, perfect relationship with your wife, you're not going to preach very often. Right. We are sinful, imperfect people. We are tr- we've got this treasure in jars of clay. And somehow we've got to be able to shift gears and bring it to the best of our ability. Mm, that's wise. That's a wise phrase. That's a wise phrase. Hmm. The, uh, the the family the family life. Of course, I'm 41, and and my my youngest or my oldest daughter, she's 15, just uh, just went to prom this weekend for the first time. And my wife and I are looking at each other and thinking. We don't even know what we're doing, you know, like <laughs> people who show up in the church and, you know, there's almost a level of expect- expectation sometimes that we get the preacher, you should know something. And you kind of like, well, I don't, I'm not even sure if I know what I'm doing is working just yet, you know. But I, I, I want to interrupt you there a bit. Uh, it, it's really healthy to say I don't know what I'm doing because we don't have all the answers and, and we're learning. But you know what? With God's word and your experience and your upbringing, you do know a whole lot more about raising children and relating to life because of the power of God's word than the average person walking through the church door. Yeah. And I, I get a, a little upset with guys who just have the me too attitude. Uh, you're a sinner, me too. You have uh. Me too. Well, that's true. But you know what? If I go to a golf coach and I say, I've got this slice. I cannot correct him. He says, says, me too. (laughs) I want something a little more than that. I want to say, I I struggle with that for a while, but I've learned to correct it. And uh, and sometimes it'll slip back. But let me tell you some things that will help you. And I think as preachers, uh, we can work so hard sometimes to identify with the world that we forget, hey, God has given us some insight into how how parents are to raise their kids and when to say no and yes. Not that we're perfect, but you know what? You don't sell yourself short either. Yeah. You 15-year-old girl, that 16-year-old girl out of the prom, there are some things you're doing and you've, you've, you've trained her in such a way that the average person walking through the doors of that church building, they need to hear what you've got to say. That's excellent. That's excellent advice. I appreciate that a bunch. Appreciate that a bunch. Among, among I mean, even that kind of falls into the same category as, as some of the other preaching pitfalls. What are some of the other things that, that you see, preaching pitfalls, things that, that guys get into, maybe habits they get into, um, just delivery, maybe study, uh, maybe just um, something internal with them. What are some of the some of the pitfalls you you, you identify? There's some little ones and some big ones. I think the big one is that the guys overextend themselves and they get drained in ministry. Uh, they just think they can serve, 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 and never take time to be filled. You'd read the ministry of Jesus, how many times he withdrew from the crowds and went apart to pray, or he withdrew from the crowds and said to the disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. And I think there's not the right rhythm in a lot of preachers' lives. Uh, they think that they're energized by serving. But even Jesus, he said, who, who touched me? Well, a lot of people touched me, yeah, but I, I felt the power go out from me. Mm-hmm. But if in serving other people, he felt the power drain from him. And, and I, I think that preachers need to take a day off. They need to, to uh, spend some time replenishing their own well, uh, whether it's reading or listening to tapes or whatever fills them. And preachers need to take a vacation. I see these guys taking uh, a vacation and they take 10 days. They miss uh, one Sunday preaching. They take their computer and their cell phone, and they run the church from a distance trying to cram in a trip to Disney World or the beach with their kids, and they come back home more exhausted when they left. Jesus preached his ministry over the last three and a half years. His first six weeks, he spends off by himself. I just think we, we overestimate the amount of service that we can render without replenishing our own well. Uh, I use this illustration with preachers. I have two Coke cans, and I say one of these is full and one's empty. I've drained the contents from the bottom. You can't tell by looking at these two cans. But I can show you. 
I can squeeze this one with all my might, and I can't make a dent in it. I can take this with my thumb and forefinger, and it just collapses mm. content within. And we see these guys collapse. I mean, moral collapse, alcohol collapses, and doctrinal collapses, and uh, suicides. We say, boy, that happened fast. No, there's a draining from within that uh, A.W. Tozer said, no man suddenly goes base. Base, yeah. And it's just, there's this gradual erosion of the inner man. And then when some woman gives attention or when we're drained and uh, we have this opportunity to escape into pornography, that's when we collapse. And I, I just think the, the, the number one pitfall is not replenishing the Holy Spirit in our own life. Yeah, I agree with you. Man, I tell you what, it's, it, it hurts. It hurts watching watching guys, you know, just because you know, just I mean, just like what you said, Bob, you know good and well that they're running high octane, they're running at a high level, they're producing more stuff than anybody out there, and you just kind of stand by and look and like, boy, I hope there, I hope there's somebody around them who says, hey, you need to dial that down, you need to, you need to turn that off just a little bit, you need to get yourself a, a, a counselor, you need to go to a conference, I mean, something small, you and your wife need to get away because. There's no age limit. I mean, and you could probably speak to this. No age limit. I'm years old. And, and uh, you know, I don't know what the finish line is for me, but I, I can't quit before the finish line because I'm still vulnerable. Yeah. And uh, I, I, one of the things that God brought into my life, and that wasn't my choice, but there were elders and friends in the church who would look me in the eye and say, Russell, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Uh, if if I had brought a staff female staff member into my house to live at my house uh, the way one of our guys who was fallen did with, with I would have had two or three guys I could call them by name and say hey Bob this doesn't look good this is not very smart you better make a correction there you better have somebody you better have some truth tellers around you uh, in addition to your wife who sees things and has the courage to confront you. If, if only you've got people around who, who consider you a celebrity and above reproach uh, automatically, I, you're making a mistake. And that's one of the pitfalls. We, we, we want what we call encouragers around us. Basically, we mean what people tell us we're, how great we are and saying yes to everything. But you better have some people around you who will tell you the truth. <laughs> which nobody wants to sign up for you don't you, you don't instinctively want that you know you don't instinctively want somebody to question you know what you do and how you do it and where you're going and how you're spending your time you don't instinctually want that but if you want to finish strong you have to have that you know yeah. i mean that it's it's endless it's absolutely endless and man that's one of the things i've i worried about for a long time you know and still sometimes worry about man just keep the focus keep doing the thing that you know it goes back to that phrase one of the saddest passages in all the scripture in the season when all the kings went off to war you know i mean and David, I think the Hebrew goes back to say something along the lines of, and David sent, you know, Joab, or, and, and but basically David sat, David sat down, you know, in the, in the time we're supposed to stand, he sat down. And golly, I don't want to be that guy. I just don't want to be that guy, you know, but inviting those people in, man, that's, that's, you're 100% right. You know, another thing I think guys do in, in ministry is that we're, we're run on emotion. Mm. And this this thing is is a marathon. I mean, and I think everybody can get up for Easter Sunday, but can you get back up? Everybody can get up for the rival game, you know. But what about the week after? Right. Can you be just as consistent the week after Easter? Can you go back into the office on Monday morning or Tuesday morning and start grinding it out again for next week's sermon and going through the most? So I, I really think. Sometimes the way we tell the Lord we love him the most is when we wake up in the morning, we don't feel like doing our duty. And we get out of bed and we put our feet on the floor and we go through the motions because that's our duty. That's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. There are going to be some highs. There are going to be some exciting moments in ministry, like the story you related to me earlier. But there are some weeks and some months when we just 
we got a we got to be a grinder. Yeah. <laughs> we grind it out. I heard Rick Ashley say one time that a preacher is better off hitting four straight singles than uh, hitting one home run and striking out three times afterward. And it's that consistency in ministry that uh, I think makes an impact over a long period of time. Yeah, there's a guy over kind of your neck of the woods by the name of Jeff Fall. Maybe you know Jeff Fall. I just saw Jeff a couple of weeks ago. Did you? But, yeah. yeah. And one of the conversations I had with him when we when we did our interview was was that that very thing. He said, I remember seeing a guy listening to a guy when I was in college who did such a great job just being consistent, just a consistent preacher. And I decided then that's what I want to be. And I tell you what, if you listen to Jeff preach. His stuff is, I mean, he's just, a, he's so constant. I mean, it's just the same swing every time. I mean, he just he's does giving, such an... He's giving you the best he can give every week. Now, when those, guys, when those guys are asked to preach at a convention or some right. special event, you're going to, a lot of times you're going to be a little disappointed because that's when somebody who is a convention style preacher <clears throat> can really step it up yeah. and hit it out of the park. But this guy is giving you the best he can give you. Week by week by week, and, and he can't do any better. Yeah, he's the best all the time. But that's who I want to go here preach week by week. <laughs> Me too. I mean, the guy who I know, he this isn't something that he dusted off and he preached at a previous conference. This isn't a thing that he had been doing a workshop on or whatever. Like a week to week guy who's had his nose in the book. You know, that's a. And I think there's I think there's room for both of those things. But they definitely definitely <laughs> appreciate that. I, uh, James Earl Massey, the great black preacher, he said these kind of said, "You give me time to spend alone with my God and my Bible, I guarantee you, you won't go home hungry or embarrassed." <laughs> <laughs> but it takes it takes time. Yeah, yeah, you're 100 percent right. 100 percent right. Hey, um, how has uh, how has ministry through the years uh, stretched you and changed you and um, Put a little, put a little pain in your life. Are there some moments to where it, it, it moved beyond anything that you, strength-wise or even dream-wise, you could even get yourself to? And these these moments that just, I mean, really just stretched you out, and you thought, I don't have, I don't have what it takes to pull this off. I mean, is it? You have any of those 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 moments? I've got quite a few of those moments, and I think we learn most from pain and from tough times. Uh, I'd been preaching for three or four years in the southeast. The church grew, and we said we need a youth minister. And this is back in the days when uh, they were, multiple staffs were unusual. <clears throat> I said, I got just the guy. He was a friend of mine from Bible college. He's a year older than I, and he's, he's got a ministry, youth ministry in Georgia, and he's having some trouble. I think he's movable. Well, those ought to be three strikes against you. Friend, <laughs> older, ministry not going. But. This guy interviewed well. The elders liked him. He's very personal. He came, and he's on our staff. He and I had some good times, but he wasn't here very long before I discovered that his uh, philosophy of youth ministry was different than my philosophy of youth ministry. Mm. And I was a non-confrontational kind of person. I just naively believe all problems will take care of themselves if you just wait long. <laughs> right. So I rather sit down man-to-man confronting him, I just let it ride. <clears throat> and I didn't want to hurt her friendship. In the elders' meeting, the elders were beginning to say, hey, this ministry isn't going very well. We may have to ask him to resign. I said, oh, no, don't ask him to resign. It'll get better. But it didn't. Mm-hmm. Then one day I read uh, an announcement he had written for the church newsletter. He was promoting a teen all-nighter, and he was going to call it a teenage love-in. Well, I, I didn't think that was a really good title. So you know how it is. Eventually you get enough anger built up in you. And I marched into his office, and I said, I think you need to change the title of this activity. But he had sensed the distancing in our relationship. He dug in his heels and said, I think I know how to relate to kids. That's what we're going to call it. Hmm. Now I've got insubordination. I'm probably 28 years old. And so I dumped too much, too late. I finally say, don't you realize this is the kind of thing that can get you fired? (laughs) Which is really leadership (laughs) one-on-one. But I marched out. Well, he asked to be on the next elders meeting. He came to elders meeting and said, I think you guys need to know that Bob Russell's trying to get me fired. Hmm. They said, well, that's strange. We've been trying to get you fired for about six <laughs> So they asked him to leave. And he said, I'm not leaving. Huh. Uh, that's not what's best this congregation. That's not what these kids want. And he marched out. He wrote a letter to the entire congregation 
saying to them, I've had a disagreement with Bob Russell and the elders. They've asked me to resign. I don't think that's what you want. I'm not going to burden you in this letter with all the problems. But my wife and I will be standing outside the church building next Sunday. We've got a 10-page document showing you the problems. Mm. Next Sunday, they passed out this document, quoting, misquoting me and the elders, putting us in the worst possible light. Everybody thought everything was great in the church, and all of a sudden, there's this rift that surfaces, and it's really stirring me. I mean, it just tied me in knots. And he uh, had a Sunday school class they met in uh, in his house. Then they'd march to church, and they'd sit in the front two rows and fold their arms and scowl at me when I preached. And that was my baptism of fire. And uh, I was able to get through that because we had unity at the core. All the elders, all seven elders were on the same page, and he kept saying, you stay with us. Don't don't leave until we're going to get through this. I got through that. But I'm telling you, it changed me forever. Uh, I became a different leader because of that problem. I was so angry at him. He's trying to split this church. Mm-hmm. But the more I got away from that, the more I understood that wasn't his problem. It was yeah. my I had not been honest with him as a leader. And I developed the capacity to con- try to discern when problems need to be confronted and when you don't. You don't confront everything. Some are like measles that go away, and some are like malignancy. you got to confront them. But I-, I learned to confront and not let things build up and uh, realize that, you know, encouragement means more if you occasionally confront. And that painful, painful experience uh, change me as a leader. Mm. Man, those moments are those moments are heavy, and they can they really can they can really mash you to pieces sometimes. You know, ministry. Yeah. And you know, you know, uh, ministry is, is getting tougher uh, by the day almost. I'd been retired for ten years, and several years ago, I was asked to be on a panel discussion over at Southern Baptist Seminary. And I was on the panel with two professors from the seminary, mostly preachers in the audience. One of the very first questions that was asked was, how should a preacher respond if a transgender decides he wants to join church? Well, I gulped. And fortunately, these two professors had made that a special study. One had written a paper on it. They went on and on for 10 minutes about if this, if that, gave good answers. Came my time to respond, and I said, you know what I think? I think I retired just on time. <laughs> <laughs> Ten years ago, we didn't have to deal with it. Right. The things that you guys are dealing with today are a lot tougher. Plus, you you don't have the degree of support in the congregation that we had 15 years ago. Yeah. You've got people out there who are being impacted by the culture, and they they are, they are so uh, uh, in, in a, so much propaganda. They're, they're so enamored with what's going on and buzzwords go up and all of a sudden you're a homophobe or you're a misogynist because uh, they've heard those words and heard the long. Those are people sitting in the pew who are nominal Christians who don't get it. So I just think it's really tough and getting tougher for the preacher. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, you know, what's interesting is I was talking to Cy Huffer. I don't know if you know who Cy Huffer is over at College Heights in uh, in, in Joplin, uh, Joplin, Missouri. He uh, was talking to him, and I said, you know, what do you see as far as the culture shifting and all these things changing? And and, he, and he's a, he's younger than me. I think he's uh, I think he's coming up on 30. And he said, uh, you know, what's interesting, Jared, he said, is the world's been like this since we got here. You know, it's just... It's been like this since we got here. So, to us, it it's not like it's not like some of you guys who've seen how things used to be. And like when you say, Tom, yeah. he's experienced it, where it's a whole transition for us. Right, exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. And so to him, it's like it's it's been a mess since I got here. You know, like <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing. And I thought that was an interesting. That's that why interesting. I think they're able to relate to it better than somebody like. Me, it's like learning. I'm having to learn a second language. Yeah, and uh, I'm not always doing that well. But for them, they've grown up with it and they understand this uh, secular culture a lot better than we do. Yeah, even my 15 year old, you know, she's like, Dad, 
I, I don't understand why this is such a big topic. And I'm like, because this is, and she's like, no, I get that. I agree with you 100%, but you seem like you have a little bit more anger towards this thing than I do. Like, I understand we're supposed to love these people. It's no big, it's like, yeah, but it's a, sh- it's a shock that we're even at this point that we have yeah. to have this conversation. And she's like, it's not a shock. You know, and I just think that's, I think that's pretty interesting as far as just the culture shift, you know, that's pretty, pretty interesting. Um, I need to, I need to go off script, uh, for, for one second, if you don't, if you don't mind, um, uh, just out of my own curiosity, when it comes to when it comes to marriage, I'm 41 years old. My wife and I will be married 18 years um, this July. Uh, what do I need to know? What do I need to know? You're 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 a guy that's already been down the road. What do I need to know? What's a what's a thing about marriage that I need to I need to understand? I need to ingest? I need to make a real thing in my life? What do I need? You know, this May, uh, three or four weeks, I'll be married 54 years, and wow. I'm still learning and growing. But the one thing that I learned maybe the hard way was how important it is that I be as energetic and engaged in my conversation and dealing with my wife as I am the average person in the church and the kids, too, because they get the message that the people of the church are really important because you're so enthusiastic and such an attentive listener and so in, in concerned about them in telephone conversations or in interactions. But then I would come home and, I mean, I'm, I'm worn out. I don't want to talk. I want to just lie on the couch and read the paper and veg out. And my wife was getting the least amount of my energy. And I took her for granted. One day, I, I, I have this illustration I have in a, in a book called After 50 Years of Ministry. Uh, I got a phone call from my wife, and I answered it so late that the answer, the uh, answering machine kicked on and recorded my conversation, and I didn't know it. But she called to tell me that she was going to be home late. And 10 minutes later, I looked, and the red light's on. So I listened to the conversation between my wife and me, and I couldn't get over the lilt in her voice and the deadness in mine. Mm. And uh, the conversation went something like, hey, Bob, you having a good day? Okay. Well, what are you doing? Reading newspaper. Well, I just called to tell you I'm going to be an hour late. We got hung up here at work. and we'll be a little, Okay. Well, do you want me to bring something home, or you want to go out to eat? What do you, it doesn't matter. And when I... I just read a chapter in a book called, Are You Fun to Live With? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not fun to live with. Mm-hmm. If I die, I want Judy to shed at least one tear. I know, i got to be honest, if that had been the average person in the church, and I would call me and I'd say, oh, I'm reading newspaper, reading this article about the Yuga football. Have you read it? Well, you know, no, take your time. Don't get in an accident or anything. Well, let's go out to eat. I've been so much more energetic. And I made up my mind. That was going to change. I mean, I was a deadbeat at home. And it wasn't a matter of time. It was a matter of focus and energy. And so I said, I am going to start laughing more with my wife, listening better, giving her attention. And you know what? We always had a good marriage, but our marriage stepped up. Our companionship deepened. And I think she's been she's convinced that she's the most important person in my life mm-hmm. and uh, more important than church and church people. Not just because I say it, but because I turn off the radio in the car if she starts talking. So I listen or I, I put down the newspaper or I joke with her and laugh with her. I touch her arm when I go by. I've just a, I, Ben Merrill said that he pounded a nail in the door between the garage and the house. Every place he ever lived, people thought it was to hang a hat. And he said, that's where I symbolically hung all the junk that happened during the day. So I give attention to the people inside who are the most important. That's brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that a bunch. I appreciate that a bunch. Yeah. Um, car guys, they notice details about cars. Singers, they'll notice talent, talented vocalists. Uh, what do you notice? Well, I'm going to take it that you're asking me that question about preachers. <clears throat> okay. I, I guess I have an antenna up to uh, hear little words that indicate ego out of control or too big of an ego. I think it's a real temptation for ministry 
so many people come to us and the service revolves around us and pretty soon uh, little signals go out about my elders and my church and I, I, I won this guy to the Lord and uh, uh, my church grew while I was and they're just little signals but they speak volumes to me about where a person's heart is. And I'm reading, I have my antenna because I'm, I'm guilty of that myself on occasion. But I think that we have to work hard to remember who's in charge here. And it comes out with little, uh, little demonstrations sometimes of, uh, of ego, just little phrases. So I notice those little things. I was in a church service a while back in a large church. And the preacher told about going to the funeral home of the, uh, a celebrity in town that he was acquainted with, one of the member of his church. But he went to the funeral home because his mother died. And when he was there, the local rabbi was there and the local archbishop from the Catholic church was there. And somebody told this funny line about the three of them being the pastor of the biggest church, the rabbi and the archbishop. And everybody laughed. And a woman behind me, I overheard, whisper to the person sitting beside her, you know, I'm a member of the church, and when my mother died, he didn't come to the funeral home. Mm. And I just think we have to be alert all the time about how ego surfaces, and that God resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. And, you know, if there, if there's no... If you have no fear, there's no such thing as courage. You're just foolhardy. Right. And if you don't have any pride, there's no such thing as humility. But but we've got to, to swallow our fear and do the courageous thing. And we've got to swallow our pride at times and say, you know what? I, I feel this way, but I'm going to have to express it in a, in a different way to, 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 have, to remind people that this is about God. It's not about me. Yeah. That's good advice. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Hey, before we before we get out of here, man, I, I appreciate your appreciate your time. I want to uh, I want to tell you I want to tell you a couple of things that I I hear in your preaching that 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 stirs me and moves me. Uh, if I can if I can throw some encouragement your direction, <clears throat> as I as I sit and I listen to to your sermons and and I listen to the way you tell a story. The the line you said earlier when you said. Uh, the way we were, the way we were, kind of taught uh, homiletically, and, and the way you believe that every line should mean something in a sermon. Uh, I know, I know, I use way too many words to to get my idea across because, I, I, for whatever reason, that's a that's a thing you do so well. Like you, you, the phrases that you that you work on that you put forward they're they're always landing in an impactful way you could pull each one of them out and you could set it on its own and it would be a true statement and i appreciate that and that's that's okay. not a my mind my mind is a little rattled sometimes i've got way too much going on upstairs and when i hear that it's uh it, it, it convicts me on the side of you know spend a little more time honing in on the on the craft on on forming these sentences on not letting not letting so much of this stuff just be a descriptor to a descriptor to a descriptor to a descriptor. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, so I really appreciate that. That's one of the reasons I don't preach uh, without notes. Mm. I I, I write out the manuscript and I'm probably sometimes too tied to that, but I do believe every sentence ought to mean something. A lot of times a sermon is, is more uh, made more by what you leave out than what you put in. And I think if we finish writing a sermon a day in advance, we spend the last day editing and cutting out uh, repeat phrases or exaggerated words or unnecessary detail. I know in a story so many times, I want to tell a little side note to this story, but it's not necessary for the people sitting in the pew. And I can save myself 15 seconds or 30 seconds by just cutting something out. Incredible. Hey, last uh, last question for you, and then I'll let you get back to your day. And 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 by the way, make sure you let Judy know. I appreciate her connecting us up on on Skype. I appreciate that a bunch. Um, what encouragement uh, can you offer to other preachers who can find themselves in uh, in a stale state, uh, stagnant, overwhelmed, worn out? Um, what kind of uh, what kind of encouragement can you offer them? I'm sure you've been there from time to time. Uh, what do they, what do they need to hear? Yes, 
everybody gets there. I mean, the <clears throat> ministry is not one ecstatic moment after another. It sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, you got to grind it out, and you got to do your duty. Uh, but know how you're wired, and all of us have some things that we do that rejuvenate us. When I got stagnant in ministry, I would say I need to go talk with a non-Christian <laughs> who is hungry. Yeah. And uh, when I start teaching the Bible and I see somebody getting it, and all of a sudden they say, "Okay, I'm ready," then all of a sudden I'm picked back up because this is what I what, what, where where how I'm wired, and uh, this is why why I came here. This is why I'm in ministry. You know, to, to see somebody, and you need to know how you're wired and go back to basics and go back to doing something that, that rejuvenates you, but don't get disturbed if. Uh, you're not on cloud nine all the time. I read an article years ago that stayed with me called Facts, Faith, and Feeling. That there are facts that we believe, we respond by faith, and the feeling comes as a result. If we try to reverse it, and feeling comes first, I'm not going to do anything until I feel it, you know, (laughs) uh, you're you're going to bomb out a lot. It better be, hey, I believe these things to be true. Therefore, I'm going to respond by faith regardless of how I feel. And then the end result is I I feel better. When God told Abraham to take his only son and sacrifice him on, go up the mountain, he didn't feel like doing it. He responded by faith. And when God intervened, when Abraham and Isaac came back down that mountain, he's feeling pretty good. It wasn't sitting at the base of the mountain facing it in the future. Yeah, you're right. Who? What's the uh, what's the phrase? Uh, what's the phrase from the was the psychologist uh, Rogers? Um, uh, I need to if I wake up and I and I act like I want to feel something along those lines. If I oh, act, like, uh, you know, uh, if you act the way you wish you felt, you'll eventually feel the way you act. That's the one. Yeah, it's a lot easier to act yourself into a way of feeling than to feel yourself into a way of acting. That's a fact. Yeah, and that's, that's a fact. what you have to understand. We're not. In this emotional age, everything's about feeling. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're not creatures who feel. We, we, As followers of Jesus Christ, we are creatures who believe facts and we obey, and the feelings are a byproduct of that. Absolutely right, man. I tell you what, this is a uh, this is a really great this is a really great conversation. I appreciate you taking the time well, to do this and uh, to talk to, and I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for being on the homilist, and uh, I will uh, I'll get with you soon. Thanks, Aaron. Welcome to the deep end of the preaching pool. Am I right? Mr. Russell, we thank you for your contribution to this podcast and your contribution to preaching. But most of all, we appreciate your service to the kingdom of God. So thanks for joining us. I thank you for listening to this podcast. Get to the website, thehomilist.com, and sign up for the exclusive content. Also, check out the YouTube channel to see the videos of these interviews. I appreciate you. I'm praying for you, and we will see you next time.